Hey everyone, welcome to the Hark Story podcast. Today we have Christy Shore with us, who I have run across in one of the mentors groups that I'm in, and she has so much beautiful, profound, nurturing wisdom to share. I invited her on today. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm really looking forward to getting into this conversation about deeper levels of self-love and how to attain that. So welcome, Christy, and I'd love for you just to share a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, you mentioned that you were a nurse and kind of how you became what you are today as a mentor for women and couples um, from your, you know, history and experiences. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's so nice to have this opportunity to sit with you. Um, I am a mother, so sort of first and foremost, my um, my some of the most transformative experiences for me have taken place in the context of either motherhood or marriage. Um, our sons are in their mid-20s and I found early motherhood really very lonely. Um, it might sound a little hyperbolic but I also found it fairly brutal and raw. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was that was <laughs> That was my early experience. And so when my kids were old enough, I actually decided to go back to school to become a nurse um, so that I could, so, so that other women didn't have to experience early motherhood and particularly labor in the first few days after having a baby um, in quite the same way that I did. Um, I worked in perinatal and neonatal care for about 12 years. And I focused, um, I focused a lot of my clinical work around lactation. So I became a certified lactation consultant. And all of my work was really inpatient with the exception of doing one-on-one um, -on -one, like house call type um, consulting with new moms and dads and babies. And one of the things that I found really pretty early on was that when I'd walk into a room, I could really feel in the environment, I could feel there's like an energetic happening. There was, and, and I could feel the presence of a woman's mother's story in the first few hours or days of becoming a mother herself or becoming a mother again. And that that often impeded her being able to feed and or connect and bond with her baby. So I started to make this sort of early really almost for me, it was unconscious. I didn't actually have a language for it, but this connection between what I now really understand as attunement mm -hmm. and, and our experience inside of relationships. And that attunement really begins with self-attunement. And ultimately what I realized that I was doing when I worked with primarily mothers, sometimes fathers were present. Um, but when I was working with a mother and a baby, what I was doing was really transmitting the experience of attunement so that a mother could attune to herself and therefore be able to attune to her baby. And that experience of attunement is, um, you know, many, many people talk about it. And I really was able to start understanding the language of it when I read um, Kelly McDaniel's book, Mother Hunger, in which she talks about attunement fairly briefly. But for me, it was like it was sort of the whole thing. It was like the umbrella under which all connection takes place. Mm -hmm. And that it's the quality of loving responsiveness that says, 
like I see you, I feel you, I'm I'm responsive to you. And it's that experience that actually enables us to feel ourselves, to feel what our needs are, to feel what our emotional state is, what our nervous system state is at the moment. And that that attunement is what enables us then, like being rooted in a self-attunement is what enables us to then connect more deeply in intimacy with anyone, whether that's with a child, um, as a parent, or with a partner. Such a profound story. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty condensed, but... <laughs> yeah, that's amazing, though. amazing, amazing journey to um, help the mothers attune to themselves first and be able to bridge the gap there. That's such, you're such a miracle worker in that regard, given those gifts. Um, what blocks someone from their own attunement? I think you use a really gorgeous word, and that is bridge, that that attunement is actually the thing that enables us to bridge the, the space between us. Like I think of intimacy as the space between us and the things that get in the way of, or, or the things that we put into that space either determine our a sense of safe closeness or, um, or a lot of static. <laughs> and I think there are a number of things that get in the way. I mean, one being whatever this the story that we're laying on, what we think we see happening. Like we all project everybody. We like that's just like our mind is meant to make meaning of whatever we think we see. But that meaning that we make of what we see out there is very often informed by our past experiences and perceptions. So what impedes that connection and, and attunement is, is sometimes just having old perceptions, which are different than feelings, and then old unresolved feelings. So it's sort of like working through various layers of, you know, like I think of, I like to think of it as, and this is nothing new. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I say I stand on the shoulders of giants, like so many of the people that I've studied with and and learned with and been taught or coached by, you know, we're, we're working at the level of our mind and, and, and our thoughts and beliefs. Oh, I know it, it was, is you mentioned before we started talking about perhaps an unconscious belief that we're unworthy. Right. And, and so whatever we're carrying consciously or unconsciously, there's no blame really if we're carrying it, it's ours, but if we're unconsciously carrying a belief of unworthiness, that's going to get into the space, the intimacy space between us. Yeah. And then, and then there's also like the level of the heart. So feelings that we may not have felt the, the right to, or the right to express or not known how to ex like actually sit in a feeling in a self-responsible way. And then the level of the body, which is, you know, in many ways, the nervous system and the, you know, and some people say the body is the realm of the unconscious. So sometimes it's what gets in the way is just being able to settle the body down in the presence of someone else. Right. Absolutely. Um, do you, did you make some connections between if the mother was not able to attune with her own mother, then that would kind of be a trickle down effect when they were trying to attune to themselves or their new baby. 
Absolutely. Like one of the outcomes of not getting either effective, adequate, or consistent attunement, which is never to say like we blame our mothers. Sure. Like that, like that I want to make sure that I, it's clear that like when we're doing our own work, you know, we're really talking about what our needs were rather than what someone else's liabilities were. Yes. Or, or, or inabilities. But one of the outcomes of not getting adequate or consistent attunement is um, shame and grief. And Kelly speaks to this in Mother Hunger, I think, really beautifully. And it's definitely been my own personal experience that when I'd sit with a mother, this may sound kind of funny, but like if she was really struggling, whether she was breastfeeding or not, but if she was really struggling with being able to connect with and bond with her baby, if I could get her to the place where she felt safe enough to cry, like my colleagues and I would actually joke. My colleagues and I would actually joke that if we got her to cry, we'd know everything would be okay. <laughs> because there's something about being able to let go of this grief of disconnection. So if she if she had this sort of experience with her mother, like, you know, I remember one client in particular, breastfeeding client who had lost her mother. So this experience of actually having her first baby was like sort of fraught or wrapped in the grief of actually not having her mother to hold her in this experience of becoming a mother. And so for each woman, I think it's very different, but I do think that there are some universal threads around what what makes it hard to sort of stay with and in like the rightness of who we are because i think that that's actually an outcome of attunement which is to feel the rightness the goodness of who we are yeah absolutely and you mentioned shame and guilt those lower density emotions kind of getting in the way um and like the deeper i had gotten into my own worthiness of love, which I feel like every human has and has to work through it and maybe continuously work through this piece. Um, it's like almost shame. It's like, I was not loved. Or I couldn't receive love because I felt like deep down I wasn't worthy. And then there's shame for not being able to receive love. And it's so deep down in the subconscious, all the self-love, like a massage, yoga, all these different things isn't going to correct this and um what could you say to that kind of avenue around actually transmuting and holding the shame to get to the other side of that yeah um if i said guilt i actually meant to say grief grief oh, i'm sorry uh, but but um but i think that i mean guilt is actually in there <laughs> um but around shame you know i heard something yesterday from another teacher that I thought was really beautiful, which is that the antidote to shame is curiosity. I, I usually say that the antidote to shame is presence, but curiosity, I think, is a kind of presence, you know, that, um, that when shame is in the house, like, you know, nothing good follows, <laughs> you know, right. like, <laughs> like, like shame is really sort of like a disconnection with from our essence and so for me like 
bringing my own presence to to the felt sensation like shame there are two emotions i think that we we tend that are so unpleasant that we will actually do anything we can not to feel them one is shame and the other is anxiety mm-hmm. and they're so like they're so high sensation that will you know like we will do anything we will scroll endlessly on media or we will eat or we'll drink too much wine or we'll stay too up too late on netflix or whatever just to not feel them but if we can actually bring our presence to them my experience is that underneath there's something far more vulnerable like underneath shame there actually may be grief mm-hmm. there actually and and i think that like there could be like guilt or remorse about having not been able to show up in a way that we wish we could have and in working with shame i think that you know it's a place to actually go really slowly and with a lot of tenderness in the way that you would want someone who really loved you to show up with you like i think we can kind of all imagine some you know, either big, loving, you know, arms that could just say it's okay. Right. And that to do that with ourselves is, you know, we, we can throw all the yoga classes and bubble baths at it, but ultimately it's it's a matter of sitting with and holding and witnessing in ourselves the truth of what we're feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way to transform it and get it to the other side. <laughs> yeah. Like presence. Yeah. Presence. Presence is what heals. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And how do you see this kind of dynamic showing up in relationships? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> really good question. Um, I think one of the things that can happen in relationships that are struggling or where there's a lot of conflict is really being able to clarify the difference between a perception and our feeling. Like just a really concrete example, I have a client who um, I'm, I'm actually working with both of them as a couple and they both have the experience of feeling misunderstood. Mm. So they both have the feeling of not being seen and, and how they react to the, the perception. Cause it's, it's actually a perception that they're not understood. It's, it's a, it's like almost like a story level. Right. And so how we react to our perceptions then starts to really complicate the, the situation because it, it makes it much harder. If we're at the level of perception, we're not really at the level of feeling. So if what's really underneath that perception of I'm not understood is, you know, uh, it's not okay for me to feel this way. Like it's not, it's not, I'm not allowed to have this need. You know, it it's usually something that it's an internal sort of relation, like relationship or orientation to our own feeling or need. So we, in our perceptions, we usually project that on our partners. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And especially if you have two that have that same perception, that's almost like a gridlock, you know? Absolutely. In fact, that's actually what 
what um, David Schnarch, who wrote the book Passionate Marriage, which was a huge influence on both my personal life and my work life, that's what he calls it. It's like intimacy impasse, where you can get to this place in a relationship where it's like it is gridlock. Things are sort of locked in place, and it can be, it can require a lot of careful, slow, and really dedicated work to sort of unpick that that knot. I think of it almost like a Chinese finger trap. <laughs> yes. From my own experience, when I notice I'm in a gridlock with my partner, like the Chinese finger trap with him, I have to back out before him because he's more stubborn than me. I have to back <laughs> out and sit with it and choose eros before ego in that particular regard and say, okay, we both aren't feeling heard. I know I have a wound about not being heard and not being seen, yeah. you know, and then hear myself and then come back to it. And there's a different chance that I'll be able to be heard by him, but not in that particular moment, you know? Yeah. yeah. And you've just described, I mean, that to me is curiosity, you know, that's, that's bringing some like that's sort of taking almost like a meta level perspective, like, okay, wait, something is happening here. Yeah. Can I, can I just slow it down enough that, you know, like for me that it's like saying, can I offer some grace to right. this circumstance to both of us? Like, can I forgive myself for my participation in this? Can I absolve them, you know, of just the fact of being a human right. and having their shtick, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, I, I love that sort of ego or Eros from Jillian's teachings, yeah. because to me, Eros is the, the experience of life making love to itself through us, mm-hmm. through our felt experience. and. Sometimes life is going to like it rough. (laughs) Like sometimes life is going to want to like give it to you, you know, in a very intense way. (laughs) I love that analogy. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's not all like rainbows and (laughs) moonbeams. Right. That's so true. And I think that there's like the fantasy idealist element that's like, this is how I want things to be. This is how I want things to feel. You just want to hold hands, have picnics, chat about everything and anything at all times, you know, and that's just not reality. It's not, you know, like, you know, most of us are, you know, we, we've got to make lunch and we've got to take the kids to school and we've, you know, we've got finances on our mind and like most of life is going to be very mundane. And so it's like, how do we find those places where we can experience the ecstatic in the everyday, like where we can actually be open to connection when it's possible and be okay with, you know, having to talk about the to-do list and please take out the garbage kind of thing. Right. And what would you suggest for kind of like switching the dial and turning back and forth um, without just... I feel like one of the most common um, challenges I hear women talk about is like the lack of presence. Mm. It starts with the lack of presence with themselves, but also just the lack of presence with 
the woman's kind of always hoping for more, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I mean, my experience is that the feminine always wants more. <laughs> like, and that's actually not a problem. Like if we think of, like, if we think of nature, like if we think of like Shiva and Shakti. So in the sort of yogic philosophy, Shiva is consciousness and Shakti is sort of like the unfolding of all life. It's like the wild profusion of life is sort of becoming, you know, coming into existence. And so the, and Shakti being the feminine, if, if that's the case, and if somebody is a, a more sort of, a more sort of on the feminine end of the spectrum, to me, it's very natural to actually be in this relationship of like always wanting more, like always wanting to feel more, always wanting to know more, always wanting to experience more, always wanting to be seen more. Like, I don't actually find that problematic. Uh huh. Except that like our relationship with that, like our relationship with, with wanting and having, with yearning and longing, like all of that, if we can't hold some of the things that arise for us that can end up getting projected on our partner. And I want to be really clear that when I talk about, you know, particularly, I mean, my experience is a heterosexual relationship. So I use heteronormative language. I just like to say that because I realize not everybody uses that language or identifies in those ways. But when we're talking about any relationship, you know, there will be somebody who, who tends to like to experience feeling and sensation a lot more. And then there's going to be somebody who tends to um, sort of be a little bit more on the still end of things. Like my husband jokes that he's got one mood, <laughs> whereas like I have many. And we, it's actually really funny to us now because it's actually really true. He's like the most steady, like, like, I, he's like deep water, very like still. And, and I'm like, everything's always moving. And for a long time, I really could not find approval for the way he showed up. And that doesn't mean that the way he sh was showing up was okay. I mean, he was actually really withdrawn for a lot of our relationship. And, and my attempts to get him into presence were um ineffective I will just say right. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were misguided and ineffective yeah. <laughs> and and so it's it it's it can be I don't want it to be misconstrued that like it's all her responsibility to do the work and therefore then he'll show up because that's not always the case but what what I do see is like when I took when I finally, after a long time, took all of the focus off of how he was showing up, if he was present, you know, how he was present, and just put the attention on what am I feeling? Like, even just at the level of sensation, like, could I, you know, could I embrace him? Like, could we kiss in the morning or hug in the morning? And could I how much could I feel in that experience? How much of my own heart could I feel? Like what really shifted us from being like totally unpresent guy, totally angry woman, because that's usually how it goes, <laughs> is 
what really shifted was my work of staying in my heart and being able to feel more and more and more so that I was actually, as you said, present. I was, I was present with myself. And that actually led me to the very clear feeling and, and realization of like, I was done being lonely in marriage. Like, not just like, oh, I'm so ready for this to change. I was like, I, I won't participate in a lonely marriage anymore. And ironically, that was actually the time at which something kind of blew wide open in his heart and he realized he did not want to die a man who was so disconnected from his heart. Right. I and I think it actually does work that way. Somebody makes a decision that they no longer want to be the person that they've shown up as, like in that closure. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does take that shift to happen sometimes too. And then they have the chance to rise up energetically and meet that and just see, oh, it's not going to work like this anymore. <laughs> exactly. I actually like this life and this woman, you know? <laughs> exactly. It could be worse things than being present with her, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I also think it's hard for men because their woman that they love basically can feel everything you know so the woman's like all knowing even if she has to kind of keep it to herself in some regard um, but she knows her man and it's like he doesn't want to face himself through that reflection at times and so he'd rather just deal with it be the man in his own world and then you know yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that really resonates for me. Like one of the things that my husband and I joke about, right. At this point in our marriage is that like, he, like nothing really gets by me. Like I, I can tell like, just like the, the barest like movement of something across his face. And, and I will say what I'm feeling. And, you know, I think one of the one of the greatest things that we can gift somebody in intimacy is sort of like the willingness our our own willingness to get gotten like to get to be seen to be sort of pierced by being seen by somebody and and understand that that's actually in in love not to like nail somebody but like to be like hey i see that you struggle like in this spot and you're experiencing pain right yeah I can 100% relate to this as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah I wanted my first um got deeper into this my thought was that I wanted to share all the uh intuitiveness that had come through me mm -hmm. and now it's a place of discernment on what to share, what to hold, when to share. It doesn't have to be now. I learned that's a really important lesson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it makes a huge difference too. And um, the tone, yeah. how you're delivering anything makes so much of how the message is received, you know? That is, I mean, that is so true. I was just talking about this with um, one of my female clients that, um, there are things I can say to my husband now that he can actually hear because even if the words were the same, the delivery 
and the the place from which I'm saying them, and it's not calculated, it's not conscious, but like this actually came up a couple of days ago, and I was using this example with her of like how to like there there comes a time when you really start to develop this sort of intuitive discernment around how and when to say something. My husband and I were talking about our sons, and they're very, very different people. We have very different relationships. Like each of us have very different relationships with each of them. And the two of us as parents have different relationships sort of with each of them. And my husband was saying about one of our sons that he feels like it's much harder to love him. And, and that our other son had always sort of been easier for him to love. And I said, really kindly, like it, there was no malice in this. And I said, I wonder if that's really because the way that this one son responds to you, it, it, it doesn't give you a lot of affirmation that your love is wanted or like feels good. Right. And he was like, Ooh, like, like, yeah, like he was like, mm, yeah, I see how that feeling or that idea that it's harder to love him is actually about my sense of, of whether or not my love is good. And I could not have said that to him five years ago. It would have been, I mean, I would have had this, I might've had the same sight. I might've had the same, like, oh, I can see this pattern. Cause like, I'm really great. With, I, I've got a clinician's yeah. eye for pattern recognition <laughs> and, and, but I would not have said it with the, the heart. It would have been all mind. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I noticed like myself with a different healing that I had to do at first, I was kind of going from a hypervigilant angle. It's like, I knew what was going on because I was constantly looking for something that could sabotage. So mm. I was like, at all times and trying to communicate around every angle to create like a false sense of safety. Um, recognizing safety could only come from within and what was the seeds of all that and doing mm. all that. Then I realized the hypervigilance was creating a lot of defense in him that I didn't even realize. I was like, why is this question making you defensive? Well, it was because of the angle that I was coming at it from, which I had no idea, you know? Yeah. So learning curve to take off, as you mentioned earlier, the different layers, the different perceptions that you're seeing something from and how much more gentle the delivery will be once you start to unravel that and get a clear yeah. vision. Yeah, that's, I mean, you're describing work that I think is so, it, it's so beautiful and, and challenging, but I think it's such honorable work to see, like, to, to really investigate, like, how is it that I show up Absolutely. inside of love? Yeah. Like, who is it that I'm showing up as? And what do I, what have I really, how have I truly experienced love? Like, cause what you just described to me is saying like, I've actually experienced love as fear or threat yeah. or not safe. Yeah. And you know, cause when you ask somebody, this is one of the things I ask people that I work with, like, what does love feel like to you? People say, oh, it feels warm and it feels sweet and it feels nurturing. And I'm like, no, no, what is love? How, what is, how has love actually felt to you in your lifetime? And that recognition for me was 
like a stunning realization that what love actually felt like to me was loss. Mm. It's like it actually, love actually felt lonely. So if I'm not conscious of that, that how I really show up inside of love is as someone who's lonely, angry, tired of being lonely and angry, (laughs) then I'm not going to be conscious of even sort of like the small behaviors that actually then elicit exactly the thing that makes me feel lonely. (laughs) It is such an interesting cycle to get to the other side of that deep awareness. Yeah. And a very worthy one, in my opinion, because anything we do in love actually then informs, I think, everything else that we can or want to create. Like, the more free we get inside of love, the the more free we actually will then experience ourselves in terms of our, our work in the world, or our mothering or fathering, like, get free anywhere. And it's going to, it's going to have ripples everywhere in our lives, but then also in the lives of those who we want to be close. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that bridge, that gap there between what they think they feel like love is warm, cozy, the picnics, holding hands, all the things to the actuality of loneliness or abandonment or those harder feelings that are ingrained from the experiences, what would be like the easiest way for women starting this to kind of bridge the gap there? Well, I mean, easy doesn't come to mind. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, possible, absolutely. Um, Very likely if you're in, if you are endeavoring with your whole heart, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, I always find it interesting sort of when we realize that gap, you know, I talk about like the gap of like where we are and where we want to be, that in that gap is actually our map. And, and yet most of the time, what we see is that that gap, we actually use that gap to make ourselves wrong. Like mm-hmm. we victimize ourselves with our own need to grow. Mm-hmm. Like realizing that there's a space, there's some there's some distance between the experience that I'm having and the thing that I, I sort of in, in my core feel called to, like I wanted a hot and holy marriage. Like I wanted a spiritually sexy, passionate, like affair with the, the man that I was married to. And I got it, except that I struggled for a long time for like first in just being like in the place that I was. And then in making that sort of shift So the first thing to me is to stop making where you are and where you're not wrong. (laughs) Like, and, and that is, that's actually not simple because like, there are just so many ways. I think it can be really helpful to work with somebody because I will very often stop somebody that I'm working with like mid sentence and just say, okay, let's, let's actually stop right here with this belief that you just kind of dropped as though it were true that's actually one of the things that's keeping you like on on the one side of this gap right but working with beliefs anything that helps you to actually get in your body so get beneath the perceptions and just to the bare sensation like 
I've studied with Gabor Mate the practice of compassionate inquiry, which is really a somatically informed process, which really helps us to sort of understand what's a perception and what's beneath the perception at the level of emotional feeling, but then also what's at the level of the physiological feeling, which and this might be, you know, very complicated, but I'll try to simplify it at the level of the body, those sensations are not infrequently implicit memories. So they're memories from a time before we had language to make sense of the feeling we were experiencing. So part of transiting that gap or bridging that gap is to become very fluent in our own felt experience, allow energy that you know, the energy in motion, the emotion that didn't actually get to move because there was no one to see or hold or witness it with us, mm -hmm. allowing that to be seen, witnessed, held, and ultimately move to kind of clear the way for what's actually in the present moment, what, what's here for us in this moment, free, like un, unburdened by the emotions or perceptions of the past that can distort or or magnify what's here now absolutely absolutely amazing <laughs> i can see that really really profound work with you and especially the different levels of experience that you've gone through to get to this place um I'm sure you can help a lot of people. Well, thank you. Um, I I really feel like my my work is my work is in helping people to get free. Like that that is my highest value. Like for me, freedom is what leads to love, and it, it's the thing that makes the other like my other values possible. And it's it's really for me it's an incredible honor for someone to allow me close you know I, I always felt it was such an honor to sit with a new mother like to literally sit at her bedside and to experience something with her and and when she would let me all the way in when she'd allow me to be with her if she cried like I would always feel so honored when a woman would let me see some part of her and I, I feel very similarly about the, the men and women that I work with, you know, as a mentor that um, in the realm of the heart, you know, we're talking about something that is so deeply personal and vulnerable. And yet for me, the heart is the, it is the, the womb of the soul. It is the place from which we create our lives and and so for me, it is, is incredibly profound work. And, um, you know, it takes a, it takes a strong commitment to want to do that work. Yeah, absolutely. And you're able to transmute, you're able to transmute your own suffering of loneliness to actually move all those blocks and have the hot and holy that you strongly desired. <laughs> but yes, I would say that we are in the hot and holy season here. <laughs> <laughs> new couple goals you know exactly <laughs> right 
Perfect. Yeah. Well, I love this interview so much. I feel like we could keep talking for hours about all this, but as we wrap up, what would you like to share to kind of tie everything together or any last pieces of wisdom? Mm. I think one of the big things is, is just not making where you are wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I think so often we pathologize our experiences, whether they actually fall into a diagnostic category or not. Um, when I really believe, and you know, this, this is not original to me, but that all of life is really here for our awakening. And if we can see our experiences through the lens of benevolence, like this is something that's painful or difficult is is really here for us to wake up in some way to experience it's a call to greater to experiencing greater love so for me that's that's one of the most significant things we can do is just to stop finding ourselves wrong for what we're experiencing mm-hmm. brilliant i think that's a perfect first step yeah thank you it's kind of hard to do sometimes but so hard I mean that's why that's why I do the work I do is that it we very I think we need to be held in that yeah you know like I and I think we need to be held you know in an experience with somebody who has it in them like somebody who actually is embodying something so that we can actually kind of learn to like almost move to where they are like to to like we can feel the truth in somebody and it enables us to sort of find our way to that truth within ourselves. I think that's one of the gifts when somebody chooses to ha- work with a coach or a mentor or a teacher, they're actually giving themselves an immense gift mm-hmm. in allowing someone else to hold them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what kind of work do you do and who are your clients? Yeah, I... I do primarily one-on-one coaching. I run a couple groups a year. Um, mostly the, my groups are for women, but I also work with men and couples. Um, I, I do a little bit of work actually with entire families. That's sort of like a, a new piece, but I, I work a, a lot around um, with individuals and with couples around relationships, intimacy, dynamics, you know, within self and within the relationship um, and many of the mother or many of the women that I work with are also mothers. So they're sort of traversing this experience of, you know, sort of reparative mothering in that they're, they're working on healing aspects of their own self and their own self, their own experience being mothered so that they're, they're they can mother in, in a, in a way that really meets their child in love. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, well, I'll have all of the information to contact you at the bottom of this podcast. And it was truly a pleasure. I loved every minute of our conversation. Thank you. Me too. It was lots of fun. Thank you so much. And I look forward to um, looking forward to interviewing you again sometime if um, we have a different topic or, you know. I love that. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Have a beautiful day.